Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About cold medicine. About post-apocalyptic land restructuring. That's a good one. About worms. Yeah. Glow worms. Glow worms. About farms. About horse flesh. About science. About going too far. Mm. About not trusting your heart and then trusting it. Mm-hmm. About physically literalizing difference to create metaphor. About bad dads. Bad dads. But mostly, <laughs> it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we're discussing For Darkness Shows the Stars by Diana Peter Frund slash friend. I don't know how to pronounce sure. that. U-N-D. Not sure. Who should do the synopsis? Whoever wants to. Hold on. Real quick. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to start with a question. Great. I love questions. Do you think this is speculative or yes. science fiction? Speculative. Very good. I have very strong feelings about how the sci-fi aspect of this YA novel are working. Isabel, you're really into genre fiction I in am. a way that I am not so much. Mm-hmm. I am not as educated and informed. So would you explain the difference between speculative and sci-fi? I think this is actually a pretty new terminology in terms of speculative versus sci-fi. Sci-fi is sort of like your Asimovs. It's sort of like your Heinleins. It takes place much further in the future, usually. Is that necessary that it's significantly in the future for it to be sci-fi? I don't know. And like, there's a lot of debate about whether Mm -hmm. or not it does. For it to be sci-fi, it has to have a couple of things. It has to have usually base travel or a superior technological element. Mm. Speculative fiction doesn't necessarily have to hewn to those two rules. It can be more like Frankenstein, right? Where it's like the tools of the day have invented something dark and terrible. Not like the revisionist history genre, but like kind of in that mode. So speculative fiction is kind of rooted in the idea of like this could happen tomorrow. Right. Whereas science fiction is a bit more... This could happen in 20 generations. Yeah. Futurism, you think, is the difference. You would argue. I would. So Asimov feels like more sci-fi to you. Kind of, yes. Sometimes it depends on the book, certainly. But I think like he's the one that people like to put there, Mm. unlike Huxley. Huxley. Thank you. Huxley isn't put in the same place as Heinlein or Asimov for that reason. Mm -hmm. And would you say 1984 is speculative or sci-fi? Sorry, that's really hard. That's a a hard hard one. one. (laughs) Okay, if you could provide two texts, and they can be TV shows, they can be movies, they can be books, they can be greeting cards, whatever. Two texts that you think really clearly exemplify something from sci-fi and something from speculative. Like something that's like really comfortably situated. Okay. I would say that Star Trek is comfortably situated as sci-fi and that uh, Woman on the Edge of Time is comfortably situated as speculative. Woman on the Edge of Time, not much of a deep cut for people we hang out with, (laughs) but for sure a deep cut for our listeners. Everyone should read it. If you haven't, please do. So is there something more? Frankenstein would be like a seminal speculative text. text. Very good. Mm -hmm. Okay, so is this sci-fi or is this speculative? Speculative. Great. Plot summary. (laughs) Okay, so basically this follows the beats of persuasion. And just like Pride, it's a YA novel. Just like Pride, we've aged down all of our main characters. And that's kind of pretty much where the parallels are going to begin and end. This is a speculative, really dark post-apocalyptic fiction, which frankly, this cover is a lie. It's got this pretty ballerina type girl dancing among the stars. And this book is very terrestrial. So we have 
of a young man named Kai, who is our Captain Wentworth character, who falls in love with Elliot, our Anne character. She lives in the big house. He lives in what is essentially a serfdom. And the main problem, other than their class, is that there's also a biological element to their differences. Our Kai character, Captain Wentworth character, calls himself a post, which is post-reduction. We don't know what the reduction is exactly. We're never told, which is fine. I actually kind of liked that mystery. As Elliot's people would call him, he is a child of the reduced. So something happened climactically five generations ago that caused the reduced. The reduced are people who don't have the power of cognition in the same way that they used to and are limited to one or two word commands. They're reduced in all aspects. So then this other class, the one that Elliot belongs to, are called the Luddites. And they have taken upon themselves to take care of, i.e. rule and subdue the reduced. And all of that was going well until the children of the reduced, the CORs or cores, start being exactly as normal human beings. And they start calling themselves post-reduced rather than children of the reduced because they are working on the supposition that the reduction is now over. And if the reduction is over, that means that equality has a chance to regain itself in the land. So just like in Persuasion, we've got a difference of class. Just like in Persuasion, Captain Wentworth leaves, he comes back and he's mad and poor Elliot is sad about it. Elliot is in a much worse circumstance in this book because it's post-apocalyptic and they're all 18 rather than 31 and 27. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's weird because we think about old-timey books as having this like problem with age, like it's always icky, Mm -hmm. but really it's just our interpretations of historical age that are icky, like George R. R. Martin making everyone 14 as opposed to like any (laughs) contemporary author saying someone was 14. Yeah. It's goofy. It is goofy. It's a goofy thing to think about. You hit on a couple of things that I think are interesting in your plot summary mm-hmm. that I kind of want to talk about. First of all, is this question of equality because mm-hmm. it kind of directly gets at the relationship between our hero and our heroine. Mm-hmm. So our heroine and heroine are born on the same day along with a reduced girl, Ro. The three of them become amigos and good friends, which is weird because she's, you know, the daughter who lives in the big house and they're essentially serfs. So like there's a question of like how friendship can arise anyway they're kids and that's it's, like a, it's a question that arises in the text yeah indeed but what I think was so relevatory about even the story of their birthdays is that the midwife is called away from the birthing house where the reduced and children of the reduced give birth to the big house and so then poor Kai and Rose mothers are left to labor alone and both die and then Elliot's mother lives because she had all the medical help that she could afford but then dies anyways later yeah, yeah. so So questions of equality. So Kai leaves Mm -hmm. the estate Mm -hmm. after the heroine's mother dies. Yep. And he asks her, come with me, which is essentially exactly what happens in Persuasion. Yes. And she says no. And the reason he leaves is because there's this pervasive use of musical instruments happening amongst the Mm -hmm. reduced staff. And her father, in order to regain control of whatever perceived loss of control he had, has all of these instruments destroyed and has many people punished for it. And so he runs away. So he got a better life. And what's it called? They call them enclaves. Enclaves. They call them post-enclaves. But they're like in, he like goes to basically the big city. Yeah. And the big city has the biggest post enclave. Right. And then he comes back different shining in jewel tones. He is in 
jewel tones. I love the discussion of costumes in this. Yes, they're all in jewel tones and he's strapping. And he is like sparkly. Like his eyes are sparkly. Well, his eyes are confusing. Right. Because they're not the same color that they were when he left. Mm -hmm. Though our heroine can't really place that. I really like that they made her first name Elliot. Mm -hmm. I did too. I thought that was really good. So Anne is... Elliot Mm -hmm. and Kai is Wentworth and eventually Mm -hmm. becomes Wentworth introduces himself as Wentworth went forth went forth I know Uh, because (laughs) because he went forth to seek a new life they get to make up their own names and he's found wealth and all sorts of stuff with this what are they explorers and they have a lot of money because they keep finding things Mm -hmm. on their travels like super fast strong horses Mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons Elliot's father and sister are interested in hosting them because they are very interested in horse racing Mm-hmm. They also found these carts that are super fast. And solar powered. And solar powered. They just found them. Yeah. Uh, but of course, through the course of the novel, we find out that they actually developed them. That Kai has been instrumental in developing them. Yeah, yeah. And our heroine, Elliot, has been doing some genetic experimentation of her own, creating mm-hmm. a strain of wheat, just like the kind of wheat we have now. Yeah, we'll produce more. Which is kind of why it's speculative. I mean, we do talk about genetic mm-hmm. designer babies type stuff, which is when the Reduction started is mm-hmm. when they started doing designer babies. We discover that Kai has gone through some genetic alterations mm-hmm. to make him superior. That the captain, what was his name? Innovation. Captain Innovation and his wife developed an attempt to save their daughter's life. It didn't work out. But it did make these three super explorers. I don't Mm want to call them soldiers, but super super explorers explorers. who can jump really high and sing real good. And see in the dark. And see in the dark. And they can see with greater detail and all this kind of stuff. That's the part of it that's speculative. There's this whole idea that five to seven generations ago, there was this terrible thing called the reduction, which happened after Clarissa and Gavin, no last name, flipped the switch in the human genetic genome to make superheroes humans and then this switch then caused the reduction where like the humans reverted into a much less advanced monosyllabic group and then you had the Luddites who like their uh, 1811 to 1816 actual historical counterparts were destroying innovation and technology. Not interested in it, avoided it, were probably seen as kooks. Yeah and then came to power after the reduction. Yeah, hid out in caves and then Yeah they lived in caves for years and then emerged as the powerful ruling class Mm -hmm. of this new world. And this question of equality I want to talk about because I'm not so sure Mm -hmm. there is an interest in equality. Also, I'm not so sure that this book is arguing for a form of egalitarianism either. I think the book is really just arguing for difference because difference is the problem that has been stratified by the Luddites. But I don't think the innovations are interested in land owning that version of equality. They've kind of made it for themselves, right? We can create our own names. If you won't give us two syllables, we'll give ourselves two syllables. I guess I'm saying like equality demands some sort of recognition from the other. And I don't think they're interested in a recognition from the other. I would agree up into a point, certainly the young ones like Andromeda, Donovan and Kai, Malachi went forth are like deeply uninterested in that. They're just like, "Mm, you guys are lost causes. You're never going to see us as equal and we don't have to be because now we're more than. Yeah. I think it's a little bit different with the innovations themselves, who is essentially the Admiral and his wife because of the way in which they've been forced to play politics. So I'm curious about that. But I feel like generally speaking, this book is actually fairly convoluted in like the way in which it's talking about equality and difference. Yeah. And like 
didn't know where to land on the question of like genetics or science and like <laughs> the future. And I was really yeah. curious about that. Yeah. And there's also this question you talked about how the reduced have cognition issues. Mm-hmm. But of course, we realize that although they have, you know, some deafness or some blindness and although their speech is not as dexterous as the, the Luddites. Luddites, we do know that Roe is very cognitive and is able to understand genetic mapping and does it for her own flower garden after watching Elliot do it with wheat. Yeah, there's a question of like how much the Luddites are aware of other people's cognition. And it seems to me that we were being led to believe that everyone's smarter than the Luddites give them credit for. But like that was never explicitly stated in the text. Yeah. And Elliot's whole reason for refusing Kai's offer of leaving is because she wants to stay and protect the reduced. Yeah, there's this idea of like a protective class. Right. That's really just a patriarchal, like, yeah. Well, I thought this question of cognition would be particularly interesting to you because you have a fascination with whales. I do. And whales are a creature like many of our sea friends that kind of create this idea of like our own human-centric understanding of the world perhaps is misunderstanding culture and misunderstanding life and misunderstanding what it means to, you know, I don't want to say to be human, but I guess to have a soul, but like, I don't really buy that either. You know, yeah, there's some like this idea of like livingness, maybe. livingness. Yeah. Aliveness. Right. Yeah. And I think whales are an interesting, whales are very because good they're one. fascinating. And we do know that whales have more developed parts of their brain that allows for like social connection that we will never understand. No, they have and an entire can, third lobe just for like, social connection. And we can look at that and be like, oh, we don't understand it. But oftentimes like that doesn't lead to us saying like, this is just another culture on earth. It leads us to be like, that's a really smart animal, right guys? Which is kind of how Elliot ultimately treats Roe. Right, which was one of my biggest problems with this text where it's like, there was never a click over. Even for Roe or, you know, our Captain Wentworth character, it's like everyone always wants to protect Roe. And I'm like, Roe is basically Gregor Mendeling violets in her like one room cabin. Yeah. And she signs is the other thing. Like this book wasn't as... Yeah, they have their own language. They have their own language. And like this book wasn't as careful as I think it needed to be to talk about how this desire to care for someone who has less power Mm -hmm. is noble. But a desire to like care and protect for someone that you perceive as less than even though you're compassionate toward them is like inching into a place that makes me deeply uncomfortable. Inching into patriarchy. Yeah, totally. And uh, I think we have to talk about I guess but like not but it's not it never is and of course our heroine is redeemed in the end because she's like they can figure it out for themselves I've got to live I gotta live my life I've got to live my life bye yeah I'll be back for harvest which is you know fine but like I wonder about this question of patriarchy and what is the line Mm -hmm. and I think this book is really messy about it because we feel deeply for Kai's character and he's right to leave and we identify with him in that way and we identify with Elliot to some degree about the reasons for her staying and I think that's where it began to like fall apart for me where it's like her especially her relationship with Roe was really difficult but also like her relationship with others she has this friend who's the foreman on the farm named Dee mm-hmm. and Dee is heavily pregnant throughout much of the novel and has a young son named Jeff and her husband who isn't referred to as husband because the children of the reduced the posts can't have husbands they're called mates what or common laws common laws so then they're like ex- echoes of like slavery in here that are you know but also echoes of just like the idea of like 
modern relationships Mm -hmm. because slaves did not have common laws. Right. So he's gone and Dee stays on the land to essentially protect Elliot and protect her from the bottom because she rightly sees that Elliot has no allies. Yeah. And there's also this question of like Dee's husband left around the same time that Kai did, Mm -hmm. but is still impregnating her. And he around. He's around. But like, where is he? Mm -hmm. I mean, that question never resolved and it feels like very much a question that was really baffling to me because they live out in the middle of the country there's like three houses mm-hmm. they all know each other they mm-hmm. all talk to each other they're all kind of intermarried or mm-hmm. about to be cousins how he could still be around and like surviving when like they don't even have enough food for the reduced on their land is really I, I just don't understand <laughs> yeah it was an interesting question because Dee deliberately didn't tell Elliot anything about him so that Elliot wouldn't have anything to tell so that she'd Mm -hmm. never be put in a position by her horrific father to like give anything away either purposefully or accidentally yeah this is a bad dad oh my god is this a bad dad like there is no complexity Mm -mm. he's a bad guy there is no misunderstanding her mom didn't even like him Mm -mm. it is revealed through the course of the novel which like what's the point of having that bad of a dad I guess we get into these questions of like we're reading a YA sure but I thought that was like an interesting move away from persuasion because like in persuasion the gentleman Baron North or whatever Mr. North isn't a bad dude he's just ruthlessly careless yeah he's a sex idiot yeah like he's a very handsome man and he's come to value that in his life as he should yep he's always been rewarded for it always been rewarded for it like he's just a sex idiot like people want to fuck him and so he doesn't like actually have to think about other people or anything happening around right and everything's always been given to him like in so many ways like Jane Austen's so good at writing somebody whose carelessness has true repercussions and like their carelessness makes them bad yeah. in so many particular ways yeah but like it's deft we understand why they are the way they are whereas like this guy is like you know Disney villain bad dude. Disney villain bad dude and then Elliot is also not Disney level but like almost like a VC Andrews character in her suffering like it's so intense and pervasive which is not true for Anne and persuasion no. and like the angst and Mm. the dramas in this book are sky high. Yeah, literally. Literally sky high. Oh my God. Like he (laughs) jumps really far and then that girl's like, I'm going to jump too because they won't just admit that they've been genetically modified but he has to like make Elliot feel bad and so he jumps and then the girl that he's been courting jumps and breaks her neck. Oh my God. Well, I mean, what was so funny about that? So like that happens in (laughs) Persuasion except they're at the seawall and Miss Muff Grove just jumps off the top stair and in this she literally falls off a motherfucking cliff. cliff yeah yeah so like the dealing with the stakes in this book was like really weird and interesting and also having them be like 18 and then 14 makes it weird oh my god like I didn't even think about the ages even though it's very clear because the first letter starts with I'm six years old mm-hmm. and it's like 12 years ago so she's 18 but like there's this whole scene that we discover like their profession of love the replacement for like engagement proposal is that after her mom dies he spoons her in a barn and she kisses his fingertips a lot and I was like wow that's pretty sexy mm-hmm. but no they were 14 I know <laughs> And then she's like crashing down on me right now in my cold medicine state. They were fourteen, literally rolling in the hay of the barn. Yes. Oh 
my god yeah so let's talk about the letters this is an extremely epistle heavy book which deviates from the original source the original source has exactly one very very famous letter yeah but you can tell that someone who read it was like what's the best part about this book the letter the letter what's gonna make my book good more letters letters from every year of their relationship <laughs> letters on letters on letters yeah it's a lot of letters so many letters they're nice they start off like every chapter and kind mm-hmm. of ground us in the relationship as it's going to move and shift it was funny to me when I noticed that the letter stopped being the chapter masthead and then yeah. halfway through they don't start every chapter they go every other and then by the time we get to the end there's only the one yeah and I was like oh fell away from your uh, epistle crutch <laughs> well it was just like an e- hypercritical <laughs> classmate and your MFA Isabel has shown up to the podcast today it's just one of those things where it's like the information communicated in the letters is all about the world and like there's a better way to world build and there oh, were yeah. better scenes of world building than the letters themselves yes I know that because the only creative writing class I took was on world building <laughs> I guess I really liked how as the book progressed you use less and less epistolaries because it really showed that you had gotten over that crutch (laughs) yeah that's what it is (laughs) and like it's funny to me when you can see something working in that way like when you can see the scaffolding of how the author put something together and like that was a particular one for me where I'm like oh we're getting less and less letters the letters are also changing the way in which they're in the text itself yeah and I was like okay I get it you're over it now cool it's fine I wonder about this question of YA like I didn't read the goldfinch or any John Green. I read Harry Potter, but I read it as a child. And mm-hmm. so I don't think I'll be able to evaluate it. I do wonder about this. Like if you sit down to write a YA novel, mm-hmm. what kinds of alterations are you making to the idea of like good literature in order to create something that's impactful to someone going through such a heightened experience as a teen? I mean, I was pulled through this book, even though I knew it was going to happen. I really wanted Elliot and Wentworth to end up together I became really captivated by them I wanted to continue reading it because of them but like of course it's it's like being like wow I ate that whole bag of Doritos like yeah Doritos are all of the flavors you like and textures you like turned up to a very intense level is that what YA is doing I think that's such an interesting way of describing it it is because it is all the best parts turned up to a thousand and like (laughs) to the point where it becomes almost untenable almost and like I think that's like the key of like really good YA writers it's almost but never over and like as someone who has read a ton of YA as an adult there are certainly like people who are really deft with this high octane emotion and there are people who aren't and part of the best parts of YA are like the unspoken thinking thing like the thing that we talked about in terms of pride like we wish that they would shut up and think about each other yeah yeah and like this was a book where it's like Elliot is literally consumed with thoughts of Kai yeah and they're kind of forced to by the because if you're going to write an adaptation of persuasion they can't talk to each other really right that's the whole point that's the whole point yeah but like there's a scene so they have this cave where the Luddites weathered out the reduction and the apocalypse event and they're down there and there's like holy space for them right because they are religious conservatives oh god they are ever rules about the kinds of colors of clothing they can wear right and the kinds of fabric and there's this place in the cave like whisper corners if you've ever been in a whisper corner like you can stand in one end of the room and then whisper in someone on the very specific part of the other room can hear you and like that's like how like aerodynamics and like blah 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 
physics. I don't know. I'm not that person. Anyway, there's this place in the cave where there's a whisper corner and Kai, Captain Wentworth character, is talking to the Musgrove character whose name is Olivia. He's like really berating Elliot and little Olivia Grove is like, you don't know her and she's actually super nice and she's been doing all this stuff and he's like, she'll never change. She'll never do this. He's got this really hard voice and then somebody like brings a torch over and then they see that Elliot was listening and could hear everything that he said but since he's been genetically modified he's always saw her in the dark yeah. and knew exactly what he was saying and that she could hear him and then he just stares her down and I was like ooh and like nothing further is said it's just like I could see in his eyes that he knew that I had been there or whatever and I was like yeah you did love it that was so really mean. great and such a teen thing to do such a teen thing to do man we talk about I did not expect this January project to bring so many teens teens into the mix neither did I frankly I'm ready for some mature content so what was in your estimation feels so weird to ask Mm. what was the sexiest part that is a really hard one to answer maybe we should change that question for when we have YA novels because we've been answering it but not really like what's the what gave you butterflies yes what was the butterflyiest in the tummyiest part okay I have like a very specific okay cool so there's this barn where Kai was living when he was on the land and they left their letters for each other in this knot and even after four years she keeps looking for his letters even though she knows they won't be there and she keeps looking keeps looking anyway there was one night where she goes to the barn because she's taken over the space where he used to sleep and the site of their only like really truly physically intimate moment she's taken it over as her workshop and she's put all of his letters up and like they're all paper gliders and she's hung them up all across the ceiling and that's really beautiful and he's at the top of the stairs trying to get in and she's locked it and he's like let me in and she's like I can't I won't blah 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 blah. I don't want you to see it and we know because we have all of her internality but none of his which is also I think a really good move for this book and then they like walk down the stairs and it's after she knows that they've been genetically modified and he's like you know I need you to keep our secret and so we have all of her internality and she's like you know this is the moment where he's gonna like relent and relax and like she puts her hand on his chest and like they're about to kiss and he's like I can pay you to keep our secret and I was like oh and she gets so righteously angry because like he doesn't know her at all that she would give it away like they could be murdered for this secret and she knows that intimately and like the fact that he would miscalculate and hurt her like that on purpose after like this incredible build up in this like candlelit barn that is the scene of their love that was a moment for me that was like epic 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 butterfly build up to like hoof Mm -hmm. I thought that was great. Yeah, I guess my most butterfly moment was shortly after that. I don't remember what she says, but then she kicks him out of the whole barn and locks the door and she just scream cries. And then once she like gains control of herself, she hears him ask the follow up question to what she said again. And he was just sitting outside the barn door. That was pretty good butterflies. Yeah. The letter she got from him whenever she was like, I have to tell you, I kissed your fingers a bunch. Mm -hmm. That was pretty butterfly. Yeah. I do want to say, I want to talk as you were describing this scene. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of a failure of butterflies. Yeah. Okay. Let's <laughs> talk about failures of butterflies. That I felt like it was supposed to give me butterflies and did not. And it's when 
she doesn't have a lot to do because they've had this extra income because they're letting her grandfather's home to the innovations and she doesn't have a lot to do at this particular point. So she's like, well, I'm going to get ahead of my work. I'm going to try to fix this tractor. Tractor's already been fixed. He's a mechanic. And so she goes through and finds all these things have been recovered and repaired and everything. Did not give me butterflies. And I know that I was supposed to be like, oh, wow, that's like his expression of love. It's after they get in that fight at that Mm -hmm. harvest party. Mm -hmm. And he apologizes to her very formally in front Mm -hmm. of other people. And I think that might have something to do with it. The idea that like expressing affection through double entendre, right? Because it could be understood as like him taking care of the farm that he once belonged to. And also he's kept it a secret from his bosses that he used to live and work there except Mm -hmm. for one of his colleagues. I don't know why that like really, it kind of like irked me. Mm -hmm. I guess it felt like he was taking something away from her. Mm -hmm. And it was like an imposition of authority and power. Like he had gone to the barn and seen how Frankenstein the tractor was, but she was just doing the best she could. He made her feel very small. And then the fact that he just went in and fixed it without talking to her, you know, it's like, what's the point of just doing it? Like you're leaving. She's staying. It just felt like a really hollow thing to do and almost spiteful. Which is how she interpreted it the first time when she gets out there and see it. She's mm-hmm. talking to Dee and she's like, I fixed the butter churn. It was only the screw that I need to tighten. And then we find out later that he'd done all of the work and then left the screw for her to tighten and be like, oh, it worked all along. Yeah, that feels so condescending. Yeah, this is a book that has a real problem with condescension. Yeah, that is the problem of the book. And I don't mean like it's the intentional problem of the book. It's the problem that reveals itself in the book. It keeps poking out all over the place. Yeah, and I think like this is our original problem with the row specifically, but like the reduced in general and like this like skeevy question of like, how do we deal with something without it slipping into patriarchy and eventually like real badness. But the patriarchy is the solve in this book. The, right. The, and the is, salve, you know, like yeah. they're like, it's okay because she can take care of them. Right. And it's like, like it's like, yeah. which kind of brings me to my weirdest part, which is when her cousin comes back. Benedict. Benedict. And apparently he'd been kicked off the property for sexually assaulting. A reduced girl. A reduced girl. And all anyone can talk about is how hot Roe is, which is also a weird part. Super weird. And, and she's our like heroine very specifically is very like, white. Yeah. And our heroine is comparing herself to Roe, which we at Womance do not approve of in a way that's like, yeah, that poor sexy bitch. Like, it's But just that like, poor simple sexy yeah, bitch. Yeah, like, oh, she's so pretty and so stupid. Oh. Which is like really shitty. And like whenever she discovers that Roe has been genetically engineering flowers, she's like, oh shit, can it be? And then she's immediately like, well, we've got to hide this. And like, we've got to fix it. Like she doesn't take a moment to like celebrate or interrogate. She just immediately is like, oh, I've got to save you. I've got to destroy this, which is so fucked up. It's super fucked up. Also the idea that she's like, Roe copied me. And I'm like, yeah, you've been working with wheat. Yeah, I don't think Roe copied you. Yeah, like, no. There's clearly something different going on, which is why I think your, yeah. like, discussion about Wales is so cogent, where it's like, Elliot cannot get out of her space about, like, the idea of, like, Luddites reduced and post. Yeah. And she's really stuck in this idea of, like, yeah. what cognition but, means or looks like. But neither can Wentworth. Right. Like, and this, like, idea that Wentworth gives Roe this really beautiful silk scarf, and everyone's like, well, that must have been immensely expensive, and everyone can just talk about how much prettier 
it makes Roe, who's already the prettiest girl on the farm. Which is like, like always held in tension as like a danger for Roe. Yeah, you're always afraid she's going to get raped. Yeah, which is a constantly. weird thing because we're never worried about Elliot getting raped. Yeah, but we're constantly concerned about Roe, which I understand subjugated classes mm-hmm. are far more vulnerable to crime mm-hmm. than others. But also it just feels so weird. This thing about like constantly talking about how beautiful Roe is. Like rape isn't a crime of like passione because they think you're so hot. Like it's so weird. Yeah. It's the weirdest part for me is yeah. how the text understands Roe as a person and how she moves through the world of the book. Agreed. That is definitely the weirdest part. I hate to say this, but like we're constantly told how beautiful Roe is, but Elliot is never jealous of Roe, never imagines a world where maybe one more came back for Roe. Like nothing like that ever comes up. Because like I think inside the text itself, like that's not an outcome that occurs to anyone. Yeah. And it like sucks that that is true. Which is why I think like this book is really confused about what it's trying to say around questions of power, equality, and difference. Yeah, exactly. It's really masticating on some big issues and it's not swallowing anything. Yeah. (laughs) It just spits it back up all marled and gooey for us to discuss on this show. Having said that, I think it's a womance. Oh, totally a womance. (laughs) Like every hard look that Kai gave her. Oh my God. All of the tingles, all of the anxiety. (laughs) And then like, oh my God. And it's like very heightened YA angst, but it's still like good angst. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I was never like, oh, brother, this hero has no reason to be this upset or broken or, oh, this heroine is really misunderstanding the conditions of her world and like, won't somebody just call somebody else? Like, I understood, and this is because it's Austin and it's based off Austin, I understood clearly why the problems could not be solved easily. Like, Austin's really good at using social class to create angst mm-hmm. that is clearly unsolvable in right. the traditional modus operandi. But this novel really benefits from that framework. Yeah, were you it ever really in a does. Creative writing class where they were like, if you get in a tight spot, you should just use a biblical reference. God, no. I have heard that so many times. I think Darren Aronofsky really took it to heart. And now it's like his whole oeuvre. Mm-hmm. But I just watched Mother. So it's like at the front of my mind. I also recently watched that film. I spent a long time not watching that film. Yeah, because yeah. I really like Darren Aronofsky and not just for Black Swan, but I really loved The Fountain. Oh, The Fountain's very good. And uh, Requiem for a Dream. I mean, he's generally understood as like very good at mm-hmm. making movies. He's generally beloved. But Mother really pissed people off. Off. Yeah. It's a lot. I just want everyone to do the thought experiment of watching Mother without any Judeo Christian really reference points. Any text in the Western world or like, you know what I mean? Mm. Like, it's so pervasive. It is such, it is a, such a pervasive text. It's funny. On the drive home from Missouri, John and I were talking about whether or not we were going to like raise our kids in the church at all. And I was like, mm, no. And he's like, they'll be at a disadvantage yeah. for the very thing that you're yeah, talking exactly. about. But people make that recommendation because they're like it's like shooting your story in the arm with adrenaline Mm. because biblical stories at least the ones that kind of stick with you the ones that are so used over and over again like Mm -hmm. losing paradise the first murder Mm -hmm. the great flood that old old testament stuff and then you know the betrayal and the girl washing your feet which I recently discovered feet is a euphemism for penis in the bible you know John the Baptist and his beheading you know like the stuff that really gets Salome 
is like it sounds so crazy but we all know it that we're able to like take it yeah you know if we see it in a book whatever framework that is you know a betrayal of some sort as long as it kind of hues to that biblical reference you can put like a lot of weirdness and a lot of adrenaline into a story Mm -hmm. but it must just come across as so like hacky and and insane if you don't know it but I think maybe Austin does the same thing for relationship stories I think it must I think like as we talked about both with this book and with pride like those moments of angst those moments of like real like shiver in terms of like the anxiety of like your loved one yeah they're great I mean Austin is you know we were loath to talk about her on this podcast and I think for good reason but it's so clear to me why she is the grand dame of this genre she's just she knows how to work it it just fixes stuff it does like the problems of this book are utterly fixed by the reliance on the overall structure of how the romantic relationship works in persuasion yep all right romance for you romance for me whoa 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 well that's it right anything else you want to say tell us what you think this cover is such a lie though like I wish can I see the cover because I tried yeah. to check this out from Chicago Public Library and discovered it was checked out I think Little I had the did copy I know you had which library did you go to Edgewater I had it sent to me my goodness and with that loosen your stays but never your principles Mwah. Indeed. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. All editing and music is done by Nick Gravelin. Our logo is by Mary Reichman. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. Feeling woeful about having to wait a whole week for more Womance? Well, cheer up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, or our website. Our webpage is womancepod.com. If you prefer to be more verbose and or direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com, and we can't wait to hear from you. In the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast listening app. Until next week. <laughs>